0: To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring for this is what the promise said about this time next year i will return and sarah shall have a son and not only so but also when rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather isaac though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that god's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated.
1: Um, and tonight I'm going to introduce kind of some of the big section ideas and uh, dive into that first passage. But let me lead us in prayer for God's help as we begin. Father, you know well that sitting in our homes, there are a hundred distractions that could take our ears away from listening to your word. And so we do pray for your help now. Help me to be clear, we pray. And help all of us to listen to you and to search the scriptures to see if what's said is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to um, tell you about a conversation I had um, in this building, actually, uh, back when we were allowed people in. It was the 50 people period. Um, And I'm not going to forget the conversation because the person I was speaking to had tears in their eyes. I'd just been preaching on how amazing the news of Jesus is, how kind of wonderful and life-changing, in fact, eternity-changing the good news is, the most extraordinary, kind, gracious message there is, the most urgent and important message there is in all the world. And as I sat down next to her and I turned to chat after the final song, I wasn't actually surprised that she had tears in her eyes because I think when you begin to grasp the good news of Jesus the extraordinary scale of it, the extraordinary kindness of it. It's not uncommon, actually, to well up. Tears of thankfulness, tears of joy. Except for this person, they weren't tears of joy. They were tears of sadness. It actually took me a few minutes to realize that. I I kind of breezed into the conversation. I was full of enthusiasm to talk about what it might mean for our lives. And I realized that she was really quiet. And then I realized that was because she was really sad, grieving, in heart pain. Again, at first I misread that situation. I thought, oh, something must have happened this week. must be some private tragedy going on in her life. But as I asked, kind of, are you okay? That's not where the tears came from. The sadness was precisely because of the good news we just heard her grief was actually a direct response of being reminded how wonderful the gospel was. How come? Well, because this Christian lady has a number of family members and friends who are not Christians and are not at all interested in hearing about Jesus, hostile, in fact, at the thought. And so for her... Hearing again the immense good news of the gospel that evening, it was just another painful reminder of what her loved ones were missing out on. I wonder if you've ever felt that. Many in our church family have felt that, do feel that. Some bear the grief of spouses who don't believe in Jesus, or of grown up children who don't believe in Jesus, or of parents or grandparents who don't believe in Jesus, or, or siblings, or flatmates, or friends, neighbors. Actually, I am aware some of, some of those friends and family members might, might be listening tonight, as Davi said, and if that is you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're really welcome, really welcome. But I realize it might be slightly odd hearing me say that, that your Christian family member or, or friend, relative, actually has a genuine sorrow on this issue but it is true. See, the more deeply you appreciate how good Jesus' offer of forgiveness actually is, and how certain it is, as we thought this morning, and how urgently, desperately necessary it is for every single human being, well, the more you feel this grief towards loved ones. For us regulars at Chalmers, I wonder if, as we've been going through Romans in the small groups this year, I wonder whether that kind of tinge of sadness has ever passed through your heart at any point in the letter, when chapters 1 to 3 were showing us that, that by God's perfect standards, no one is righteous, not even one. Even seemingly good people, religious people, well, they're not living by God's standards, but defining their own standards to justify themselves, which in God's world is a dangerous place to be. And actually, whether we're religious or irreligious, whether we're atheist, agnostic, or an adherent to a world religion, Romans has said, outside of Jesus, we're on a collision course with our Creator and His wrath, His His righteous, just indignation at the way we ignore and reject Him. Romans 2 said that, God's in God's patience and kindness his wrath was being restrained it was being kind of stored back at the moment but there is a final day of reckoning coming a judgment day and it is hard to hear that if you believe it and not think of those who don't believe it with heavy hearts with tears in our eyes What about from chapters 5 to 8? We've just heard about the, the massive, the wonderful difference it makes to be a Christian right now, to be justified right now, to be united with Jesus in his death and resurrection right now. It means that when suffering comes, like a global pandemic, say, there is solid hope and help. It means that we're no longer doomed to just go round and round the cycle of slavery to sin No longer trapped by death ultimately, but can be utterly confident that God is for us, that His Spirit lives in us, that resurrection life awaits us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But again, what about those who haven't put their trust in Jesus yet? What about them? That's where Romans 9 is turning next in this amazing letter. From the glories of Romans 8, from the kind of climactic Christian confidence in the face of everything the world can throw at us. Well, now Romans 9 comes crashing back down to earth with a bump. Because just like the lady I spoke to that night, Paul here, the Apostle Paul, is grieving. He's genuinely grieving. If you've closed your Bible, please do open it back up at Romans 9. He's grieving that more of his friends and family and fellow Jews are not believing in Jesus. They're, they're forfeiting this glorious salvation. They're still in desperate danger. Just look at me, verse, with me, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It hurts, Paul. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. And actually, the more we grow in gospel clarity as Christians, the more this kind of grief deepens. It's just sad when those we love don't love Jesus, don't acknowledge their need for him, reject the thing they most need, salvation in him. In the last couple of weeks, there have been a number of and bereavements to members of our church family. In some of those situations, there is real hope alongside the grief. Because we know the loved one was trusting in Jesus. We know, as 1 Thessalonians was teaching us a couple of weeks ago, that we'll see them again in a glorious, glorious reunion when Jesus takes us to eternal new creation life. But there have been other deaths and diagnoses this week that have come with the sorrow of not knowing where someone stands with Jesus. Or more painful still, where there is open hostility to Jesus, open rejection of his call to turn and trust in him for forgiveness of sins. If that is you, Paul knows how you feel, he is grieved by the open hostility and the cold apathy of his fellow Jewish friends and families. he's so grieved, verse 2 and 3, that he even wishes, if it were possible, he could swap into their place. It's extraordinary. Uh, Verse 2, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's an extraordinary statement. If I could take their place, I would. Sometimes grappling with that pain, it can lead us to wonder kind of what's God doing. Even lead us to be tempted to question God's character or God's goodness or God's grace. Why hasn't he saved them? Why does he choose some and and not others? And how is his choice fair? None of those questions have easy answers to hear. But in God's kindness, Romans 9 to 11 will face right up to them. Just look on to verse 14, where we'll start next week. In verse 14, Paul explicitly raises the question of injustice. Is God's choice of who to save fair? So please do come back for that. But this week, please do know you're not alone in the pain. Many of us know how it feels, even Paul. But what's striking about this first passage, our passage today, is that despite the acute personal pain of the issue, Paul can see there's a much bigger issue at stake in these chapters. You see, what adds to Paul's grief is that these unbelieving people he knows are Jewish They're Israelites. That is, they come from God's people of promise. And that raises the stakes even more. See, there's not just a personal question in the air. There's a huge kind of salvation historical question in the air in Romans 9. You see, for the vast majority of the Bible, it seemed like God was focused on on saving Israel, this Jewish nation. And yet when Jesus arrives, the promised Savior in Israel, he's rejected by so many both in the Gospels during his life on earth, and then on into the book of Acts, his reign from heaven, as the good news of Jesus is preached. Let me give you one example. Thessalonica, the young church plant that we've been hearing about on the last few Sunday nights. Who was it in Acts 17 who chased Paul out of town, who hated what he was preaching so much they caused a riot? Well, it was a number of Jewish inhabitants of that town. Which, when you pause and think about it, is all it's all back to front. I mean, Luke in the mornings is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament was pointing to. He came to Israel because they are the people of promise. Paul points it out here in Romans 9 verse 4 that they've got all of God's special blessings, Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who's God got over all blessed forever. Biblically speaking, they have everything going for them, because God was going for them. God said in Exodus that Israel, this nation, was his son, They had adoption. His glory had come to dwell amongst them in the tabernacle. He'd formalized his commitment to them in, in covenants. He'd given them law and promises. He even sent his son as a Jewish man in Israel. They had everything going for them. God's promises going for them. And so how deeply grievous it is to Paul that so many have rejected Jesus. If you want a tiny sense of it, it, it's like, you may know something of the sadness of when someone's been around church circles, perhaps even from a Christian family, that they've heard it all, they've been sitting there listening, but then they reject Jesus for themselves. If you know, if you know that sadness, you know a, a tiny sense of this. But it's more than that because it it was for hundreds of years that God had this special commitment, special promises to this people. So what's happened? Where does Israel fit in God's great salvation plan? How do they relate to the gospel? Has God just given up on them and and kind of moved to save people from the nations instead? Chapters 9 to 11 are going to have a lot to say about those questions. But here's the thing. Even the fate of Israel is not the main topic of these chapters. Lots of people think this section of Romans it's a bit of a kind of digression, a bit of kind of excursus, just something of interest that, that Paul maybe put in because there was a Jewish wing in the church at Rome, and, and maybe is interesting to those who are fascinated by the, the way the nation of Israel fits into God's plans today, but it's not really relevant, not to us, not to a kind of majority uh, non-Jewish church here in Edinburgh today. Thinking like that is to miss the main issue. See, the topic of these chapters, these six weeks, it's not primarily Israel. It's God, God himself. His character is the thing in question. Israel is just the historical case in point. See, the fundamental question of these chapters, it's not just the the painful personal question, what about those I love? Huge though that is. It's not just the salvation historical question, what about Israel in God's plans and his purposes? Big though that is. No, the really, really big question that sits behind those other two is this Can God be trusted? Can the God of the gospel, the God of Romans 8, be trusted? It's why we've called the series, How Big Is Your God? God is the topic fundamentally. But of course, God's track record with Israel is key to showing us what he's like. I mean, if God made loads of promises to Israel and then walked back on them or or changed them, or they just didn't come true, well then how can we trust anything he says? I guess we may know people like that who say things, promise things, maybe wonderful things, maybe well-meaning, sincere things, but they don't follow through. You come to learn that, take those words with a pinch of salt, they're they're more hopes and aspirations rather than commitments. To be honest, sometimes we are people like that, aren't we? Saturday I said to Jess, I'll definitely do the washing up. Sunday morning, it was still there. What would it be like if God was like that? If God's promises weren't actually definite, not a, a solid foundation to, to build our lives upon. In fact, more to the point, by this stage of Romans, what would it mean for everything we've heard so far? I think loads of us have, have, have just been really thankful for, for working through this book together as a, as in our small groups this year. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough on Zoom. I don't think many of us enjoy that. Uh, We're weary from life and from circumstances at the moment. We just want to see each other. We just want to eat a meal together, don't we? But nevertheless, small groups in Romans have been a lifeline. It's been wonderful to be reminded of these wonderful good news promises that we benefit from as Christians. And there have been so many already. I wonder what promise has meant most to you from romans so far that'd be a great thing to discuss in breakout groups afterwards in zoom here are a few that have struck me nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord how about this all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose we were battling to believe that this week for various reasons what about this one if god is for us who can be against us Or this one, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Or this one, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Or this one, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Or this one, since we've been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or this one, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's just a selection, I mean, I could carry on. Romans 8, it's been this amazing crescendo of gospel confidence that we are his children, adopted, unstoppably headed for glory. You can imagine the, the letter being read out and people cheering in the Roman church, except there's one person in the back row, weeping. Weeping, because they're thinking to themselves, God said all of that to Israel. Israel. To my friends and family from Israel and look at them now. And it really is the same promises. Just look closely at verse 4 with me. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption. Adoption is precisely the blessing that Romans 8 has made such a big deal of. We have the Spirit. We call god abba father we're going to be glorified as his children in the future with resurrection bodies like our brother jesus so hang on hang on didn't israel have adoption once and and it seems like they've lost it now and god was for them and and what about now and and they had god's glory and god's promises but now it seems like many of them are on the outside and missing out so so what actually has happened here Has God changed his mind? Has he changed the plan? I thought nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ, but something seems to have separated them. I thought we'd been permanently adopted, God permanently for us, but wasn't he for them? Do you see the issue? That's the key theological issue. Can the God of Romans 8 be trusted? As we celebrate our global mission month at the moment... This great expansion of the gospel to the nations, is it actually in line with God's promises and his character? Has God suddenly moved the goalposts Has he kind of ripped up the, the covenant contracts with Israel? That was a kind of plan A focused on them and now we're on to a plan B. Well, if that's the case, who's to say he won't change it again? How can we be certain of his promises? There's much more we could say, but I hope you're starting to see why this section of Romans really matters. Chapters 1 to 4 gave us confidence in the gospel by looking at the problem. Everyone needs this gospel. It's the one salvation solution to humanity's biggest problem. Chapters 5 to 8 have given us confidence in light of present experience. Despite suffering and sin and death, the challenges we face, the gospel does work. But now we need confidence in how the gospel is working out in history. Does the rejection by many in Israel undermine the gospel, undermine God's character? Or can we trust him? And wonderfully, as we go through these chapters, they're not just going to be a kind of defensive argument getting God out of a bind no Paul is going to display God's glorious attributes his faithfulness his mercy his justice his kindness his extraordinary wisdom as God weaves his salvation plan across the centuries across the globe across ethnic boundaries across individual lives it's my hope and prayer that we're going to move from the grief that chapter 9 begins with In Paul's heart, on to where chapter 11 ends. Just turn there with me. Chapter 11, verse 33. And I'll read how Paul ends this section as he prays. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him? and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The section may begin with grief, but it ends with worship. And there are going to be a number of steps to get us there. Some of them won't be easy for us to accept, because this, I think, is a deeply humbling section. But we are going to see that God is bigger and better than we think, even as we realize we're smaller than we normally think. But that's more than enough on Romans 9 to 11 as a whole. For our last few minutes, we're going to turn back to chapter 9 from verse 6 uh, for our second point, which picks up this key question about whether God has broken his promises. Um, So if you're... um, If you've been zoning out or you've uh, started multitasking, um, put down the WhatsApp or um, have a blink. Apparently that's partly why we get tired because we don't blink enough when we're looking at screens at the moment. Um, And join me in verse six as we begin this answer. Has God broken his promises to Israel? And Paul's pretty clear, isn't he? Verse six. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It's our last point today. Uh, God has not broken his word, but kept it. We're going to need to follow the twists and turns here, so please do concentrate for the next couple of minutes. Um, But uh, let me pick up again from verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, Paul here is making actually a really big statement. And it's one that's still not always recognized by many well-meaning Christians who will involve themselves in the politics of Israel as a nation state or who expect that every single Jewish person will be saved just by virtue of being physically descended from Abraham. Paul says, no, that's not the promise God has made Biblically, God's children have never been defined as all those physically descended from Abraham. That is, God's people have never been defined as including every ethnic Jew or even every circumcised person related to Abraham. It's a big thing to say. But Paul's not innovating here. He's just saying precisely what God's word teaches. Not some late development, but all the way back in the beginning in Genesis itself. In fact, at the very founding of Israel, the start of choosing Abraham and his family, the family of promise. Just look at seven again. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Now the background to this is the passage that we had read by Davi earlier. Abraham has been promised that his descendants will be the people who are blessed by God. Where God's salvation is going to come through his his line and But Abraham and Sarah initially didn't have any children, so after a bit of waiting, they took matters into, well, he took matters into his own hands and slept with his servant called Hagar and had a son named Ishmael. Now, we heard in our reading Abraham asking God to choose Ishmael to carry forward the line of promise, the line of blessing, but God said no, because his choice was Isaac, this miraculous baby that would be given to Sarah. And Paul's point is to say that even in that very first generation, God was making a choice about where his blessing of salvation would go. Isaac, rather than Israel, one and not the other. So they're both sons of Abraham, both Jewish, both descended from him physically, both circumcised, actually. They're so both formally members of that covenant. But actually, only Isaac was chosen as the line of promised salvation, God was still kind to Ishmael in lots of ways, but Isaac was his choice. And in case we think Paul's reading too much into that one story, or maybe it was a one-off because Ishmael had questionable origins, well, exactly the same pattern happens in the next generation. In fact, even more obviously with Esau and Jacob. So again, Look with me from verse 10. Again, a barren woman woman is give, given miraculous children. This time it's twins, so there's nothing to distinguish them. They're coming from exactly the same father and mother and the same womb at the same time, pretty much. But this time God goes out of his way to show he is making a choice. One, not the other, will be the recipient of his promise and his blessing. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so same dad, Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now in various ways, God makes it really obvious that he's the one making the choice. Firstly, Jacob, he's the younger of the two twins. He comes out second. And normally in that culture, the firstborn would get all the inheritance rights. But God's choice is overturning the normal order. Secondly, it's it's clear it's God's choice because it happens before they're even born. God says and announces that his choice is Jacob to carry forward this line of blessing. I mean, it's hard to imagine how God could make it more obvious or explicit Those first two generations of Abraham's family, he makes a clear choice. Him, not him. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And Paul does draw out that... um, it was clear this choice was not based on what they'd done or what they would do. Verse 11, though they'd not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls, she was told. So right from the start, God making it clear that Israel, not defined as those physically descended from Abraham uh, but rather defined by God's choice to save, God's promise. And so, verse 6, if now, as Paul grieves, not all ethnic Jews, but some, are trusting Jesus for salvation, well, God is not suddenly changing his approach or breaking his promises. Quite the opposite. Right from the start, that was how he worked. Right from the start, he showed that his choice is where blessings flow. It's all of grace. It's not based on performance or even ethnicity. I wonder what you make of that. Let's just take a step back. Because I think this truth that ultimately God chooses who gets saved and who doesn't, I think it's something we, we find it very hard to take on board it's not that it's not clear in the Bible. I mean, it's really clear in Genesis, in Romans 9, and repeatedly throughout. But, but we, we struggle to accept it in our hearts. In fact, you may feel like Paul's, he solved the opening crisis, kind of why are many within ethnic Israel not trusting Jesus? What does that say about God's promises? He solved that crisis by raising an even bigger one in our minds. Hang on. So you're, you're telling me that God's consistent as in he's consistently selective he's consistent in choosing to save some and not all doesn't that just raise more problems like like how is that fair like what about factoring in the good that people do in their lives I mean Esau and Jacob they they might have gone on to be good people why are innocent people being left out I mean poor Ishmael poor Esau how's it fair on them There's the injustice question again, and if that is burning in your heart, please do come next week. He's going to tackle that from verse 14 onwards. Jay will pick that up. But actually, before we get to that fuller answer, even here, there's a number of things to say to that question. Just think about the context of Genesis. See, I think some of our heart struggles with this issue is we kind of assume that everyone is innocent and deserves God's favor and blessing. And that makes us feel uncomfortable that God's being stingy and mean to deny it to some. But the start of the Bible in Genesis, just like the start of Romans actually, reminds us that innocence is not the state of humanity at all. Ever since Adam and Eve refused to treat God as God and decided they knew better, wanted the throne for themselves, well we've been doing that ever since rebelling against our maker suppressing the truth about the real god not worshiping him giving him thanks but turning to other things things he's made and worshiping them in fact by the time god chooses abraham and his grandkids we've seen a downward spiral of sin in genesis 3 to 11 violence selfishness rejection of god in in the flood in genesis 6 to 9 god has assessed human hearts and said they're evil all the time everyone puts themselves first treats others badly doesn't give god the real god a look in you see if god were to look across humanity in genesis 12 and choose to give salvation to those who deserve it there would be no candidates it's just what romans As taught us, Romans 3, no one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, when God chose Abraham, it was a free gift, an act of kindness, grace, entirely up to God, nothing to do with Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshipper, like everyone else, but God chose to set his love upon him. And so with Isaac... And with Jacob. It's not that Jacob was anything better than Esau. No, if you read Genesis, he was a complete cheat. And Esau wasn't any better. If God had waited to see, okay, well, let's see which of the twins deserves blessing and salvation. The answer was neither. In fact, the entire family of Abraham across Genesis is a case study in dysfunction, rivalry, selfishness, rejection of the real God, God is not rewarding only son of the innocent. He's choosing to have mercy on some of the guilty. Much more on that next week. But just before I finish, you you may be looking at verse 13 and saying, well, hang on, that really does seem too harsh, doesn't it? Verse 13, as it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Two brief things to say. Firstly, I think the language of love and hate there—it it is an expression to say God was for uh, Jacob and against Esau. It's not so much about emotional state in God. It, it's more about um, uh, Jacob. I chose and was for him. Esau, I rejected. That's the first thing. Secondly, though, and this is striking, the, the quotation here doesn't come from Genesis, right at the start of the story. It comes much later from Malachi. By that point, we've seen what, um, what Esau and the nation that f- came from him, Edom, is like. And we've seen what Jacob and the nation that came from him, Israel, is like. And they were as bad as each other. You see, all people, all nations, all of us deserve judgment, not blessing, but God nevertheless chose not to bring total judgment upon Israel. They didn't get the same treatment, the same just treatment as Edom. God had chosen to set his love upon them. And if we've been listening into Romans, we'll recognize that idea. You see, the only reason that we can sit as Christians. Able to claim the promises of Romans 1 to 8, whatever our ethnic background, the only reason is God's grace. It's not from anything we've done before or after becoming a Christian. All we contribute is our sin. Salvation's entirely because God chooses us, chooses to set His love upon us, chooses to adopt us. It's what He's been doing since the start of the salvation story in Abraham. And it is an immense privilege, a humbling privilege to be included in it, especially those of us who are not Jewish. Many of us may feel that God's election is a truth we struggle to rejoice in. But if it weren't for that, there'd be no salvation for us at all. And the alternative, of course, would be that we've contributed something, that we've something to be proud of, something that sets us apart from others. Like our performance or our decision or our wisdom or our strength of faith is really why God is for us. But no, the humbling news, wonderful but humbling, is that God is for us because he chose to be, graciously, chose to give us faith. And actually, the more deeply we realize this, the more deep we'll grow in humility Humility to have sober judgment about ourselves. Proud Christians are oxymorons. Humility to have gracious relationships with one another. We are all in the same boat of mercy. And humility to come to God in amazed worship. To say when I turn to him in prayer, not just why are you not doing this, why are you not doing that, but to say thank you. I don't deserve this. Romans 12, when we get to the application of um, this section, is going to call us to worship, lives of worship in view of God's mercies. I think as we stop and ponder on God's gracious choice to set his love upon us, it should grow us in humility. Humility in worship and in real confidence that this God always keeps his promises. As Romans 8 put it, those whom he predestined, that is, chose, he also called, he justified, he glorified. It's actually a wonderful thing that my future depends on the strength of his love, not mine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do um, pray for your help to see you as you really are and to love you as you really are. Please lift our hearts in worship to you and humble our pride that would love to be the ones in charge of the universe, the ones even in charge of our salvation. We pray for any for whom this is a deeply painful subject as they think of loved ones that you would draw near in comfort and help them to keep um, faithful in prayer and witness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.